Yuma all and warm Pacific greetings. Uh, my name is Jay Caldwell. I'm the Interim Director of the Australia Pacific Security College and welcome to this episode of Pacific Wayfinder focused on climate security in the lead into COP27 which will be held in Sharm el-Sheikh in November. I'm joined here by two colleagues who are going to lead us through this conversation and it's really wonderful to have them with us. I'll start by introducing Professor Mark Howden. Mark's the director of the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, and he's also vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Joe. And we've also got Mr. Choi Yiting, who's the Kiribati Presidential Advisor for the Climate. Um, Choi's currently uh, on, uh, on study leave at present. Um, and uh, and deepening his understanding, which he's going to be uh, bringing back in terms of the assistance of the people of Kiribati. So, Choi, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, 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 thank you. Thank you for Excellent. Um, so today, our, and let me just, I guess, briefly set up our conversation and, and, then, and then we'll get into it. And, and we want to start with our conversation about the climate science because it's undeniable um, and the current and prospective impacts of climate on the Pacific are, are sobering to say the least. Um, Pacific leaders have identified climate change as the greatest existential threat the region is, is facing um, and the rest of the world has caught the message uh, in terms of what this means uh, for the Pacific. Um, we want to talk about not just the climate, uh, not just the science, but into I guess some of the global mechanism uh, for the COP27, uh, which is about to occur, as we said, in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, in Egypt and think about uh, how has this process worked for the Pacific till now and what should we be thinking about in terms of the meetings coming forward. And then we want to talk about some of the immediate impacts. Um, and it's wonderful to have Choi here because uh, we're seeing the impacts on some of those uh, uh, of climate change on, on those weather cycles. And uh, Kiribati is going through an extreme drought, which is something of an expression of that. And so that's what we want to come to at the end of that. But first, can we start with some of the climate science? And, and I might start with Mark and then and Choi, if you've got any thoughts following that. But Mark, I guess, what are the big headline judgments we should have in mind in terms of climate change impacts for the Pacific? And has anything shifted in our perception and our understanding um, over the past year? I think the story in terms of the science and, and climate change has is, is actually been pretty consistent for some years now. And that is that uh, obviously, there's general warming uh, of, of the, the Pacific area, and that's associated with the ocean warming, um, and obviously sea level rise associated with that and with ice sheet breakdown. Um, but the, probably the thing that has changed over the last year or two is, is an increased understanding of El Nino and La Nina and, and how they may change under climate change. And, uh, and, and that is essentially a uh, that it's likely to become uh, more significant in terms of the variability. So the wet phases are likely to get wetter, regardless of where you are in the Pacific, and the dry phases are likely to get drier. So we're seeing likely increased variability associated with uh, El Nino, increased disruption, but not necessarily increased frequency of those events associated with climate change. So those are um, quite significant. Now, of course, um, associated with El Nino and La Nina in the Pacific are um, the uh, floods and droughts that different places occur and and so for example in you know, La Nina like we're currently in we tend to get very bad droughts in the central Pacific uh, but lots of floods in the western Pacific and so so depending on where you are you get differently influenced 
and importantly, uh, El Nino and La Nina influence both the location and strength of cyclones across the Pacific. And so you, you can see uh, impacts on extreme events associated with that as well. And so all of those things are, I think, becoming uh, more uh, well understood uh, as to how they're changing now and how they may change out into the future. That that helps, and I and I think as we said, we're really lucky to have Choi here with us, and and I'd like so I'd like to go to that conversation about I guess understanding the direct impacts and and Choi, the Kiribati government declared a state of crisis in June following that extreme drought conditions. Can you talk to us about what that experience has been in the country to I guess ground the ground the science there for us? You know, after they they declared that that kind of you know. A state of emergency or state of crisis. Um, the the thing you have to know is that we already have these systems in place here. I think we were talking about this earlier on. We have you know uh, mechanisms in place to to prepare, respond, and maybe recover from these events um, in country. But I think um, there still is a gap in terms of you know capacity capacity to really you know address the issues firsthand. Um, and you know when we're talking about capacity, we're we're not just talking about you know. Uh, the local capacities, human capacities, but, but we're also looking at, you know, the financial capacities, yeah, of, of, of how to, to mobilize resources uh, to respond to these events. Now, um, Professor Howden mentioned as well, uh, I guess, I guess the, the variabilities, yeah, the, in terms of um, uh, the events that will be those with regards to the, the La Nina, um, you know, events that, that we're facing now. I think uh, in Kiribati, you know, we are blessed in somewhat uh, to be on the equator, which is, you know, uh, you know, where the sources of, of, of tropical cyclones are, you know, start coming up from. But the other thing is with the, I guess, with the impact or, or the severity of these, these systems kind of forming, uh, this does have kind of trick, well, a trickling effect to, to Kiribati as a whole as well. So we're getting more storm surges if we're, we're going to, to face, uh, like we are now, a drought event uh, or a drought period, um, it'll be even more severe. Yeah. Um, and that's something that, the government and the resources that we have in place are not fully up to date in terms of you know responding to efficiently. Yeah? Um, it is uh, a challenge at the moment, um, but I know uh, the stakeholders, the key sectors involved, are doing their job to try to you know um, respond uh, efficiently. Yeah, despite I guess the lack of capacity, the lack of resources that we have in place. Yeah. This is I guess where. I mean, we're reaching out as well, I think, as a government to, to other partners, other you know, organizations, you know, to, to support, um, I guess, uh, our efforts to, to, to address the, the issues firsthand. Yeah? And that, that's right. I mean, the, the government's been really proactive. I'd like to, uh, perhaps if we could come to Mark, back to Mark, I guess, because the, the, the prospect that Kiribati is facing of that more intensive cycle that you talked about, Mark, is is right through into 2023, isn't it? So, th is that the kind of the a deepening of this challenge over that period? Yeah, the current La Nina seems to be pretty well set in. Uh, so there's uh, you know a huge amount of cooler than normal water across uh, the eastern Pacific, stretching right across to the top of uh, Papua New Guinea. So almost like a big triangle uh, from the equator downwards and the southern part of that is halfway down Chile if that gives you a picture there's this huge triangle of of cold water and uh and and that seems to be pretty stable it's not moving anywhere in a hurry as far as I can tell um there's been a few over the last couple of years there's been a few times where where some potential destabilizing influences have occurred in the in the eastern pacific but but um, they haven't actually persisted 
and so so um, the La Nina conditions have persisted. And as far as I can tell, um, these are going to last well into 2023. Really challenging, Toy, for and 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 for Kiribati particularly, and and just from I guess some some public reporting there that already identified. Uh, contaminants in, in groundwater sources of up to 70, over 70% in terms of groundwater sources and changes in hygiene practices as people try to try to conserve water. Is that, that that's the community impact? I think the, the, the water issues that we face in Kiribati have been longstanding. I think we, we've, all, we, we've you know, been facing kind of, you know, contamination of water and like salinity of water um, and even uh, the lack of, you know, access to water uh, for quite a while now. But I think what, what, what the science tells us, and, and based on, I guess, the, the projections here, is, is that, um, you know, it'll be become more severe, requiring, I guess, additional uh, expending of resources and stretching out kind of, you know, um, the, the capacity of, of government to respond to, the, to, to, to this event over a long period of time. So, I mean, it's, it's bad for me to say time will tell, but, you know, I think there needs to be kind of, you know, uh, preparatory measures in place, because if we are going to... to, to to kind of witness or, or uh, be impacted over, um, well, leading into 2023, that, 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 you know, that there needs to be kind of, you know, a decision made by government. And I understand the declaration of, of a state of emergency or the, you know, of the crisis for Kiribati was the first kind of pinnacle kind of, you know, uh, uh, step for government here. Yeah? This kind of allows the, the mobilizing, well, mobilizing resources and getting kind of, you know, the humanitarian support that's required from, you know, our external partners, but, um, because it, it kind of spans over a long period of time, that's that's something that we'll, we'll have to see and and you know kind of monitor closely to, to see how how you know the government is responding to this uh, you know more effectively. So yeah, interesting times ahead. Well, not interesting, but I guess you know challenging times ahead. Yeah, yeah, challenging times indeed. And it, no, I think it's um, one of the things that outside of the Pacific, while it's reasonably well understood in terms of the challenge of drought conditions, and there are a number of countries that are talking about it. It's not just Kiribati. Um, although Kiribati is expen- experiencing it mo- most pointedly at present, I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily well out- understood outside of the Pacific that uh, the climate change implications in regard to drought in the region, as and, you know, people understand the issue of sea level rise, etc. But but uh, drought is not necessarily well understood, and I think that's one of the reasons why leaders have pushed um, for that connection between sort of ocean climate nexus. Uh, to be actively recognised, is it? it um, would you agree with that, Mark? In, in terms of that the importance, in terms of that recognition between ocean and climate? Yeah, absolutely. And so, typically, uh, in an El Nino, so the opposite phase, we we get significant drought over in uh, places like Indonesia and East Timor and Papua New Guinea, as well as Australia. And so. Uh, and in particular, um, uh, places like Papua New Guinea, um, you know, last set of El Ninos, they, they had very bad drought. And, and with drought often comes increased frost risk. Uh, and so that can also destroy food crops. And so, uh, so there was quite a significant uh, food security issue um, arising um, in those uh, previous El Ninos in that part of the world, just as there are um, in the Central Pacific with La Ninos. Uh, we just heard from uh, Choi there. And, and I think that is starting to be understood that uh, we're, we're dealing with multiple factors. In fact, um, this whole idea of complex and compound risk is, is I think, starting to appear on policymakers' uh, agendas. So it's not a single risk. Often these risks come in packages. And so 
So it's not just about treating a single thing, it's actually about treating a whole package of those things. So for example, in Australia, um, heat waves link in with droughts, link in with increased fire risk. And so, so it's, uh, you, you have to have a, a, a response which understands that there's a link between those three things. Can I, can I just ask you, Choi, pick up on that point from Mark there about uh, compound and, and packaged risk. And, and you've been one of the people who've been the policy makers uh, from a Pacific Islands end. Do you, do you think that's, that's uh, well understood in terms of those, those compounding and, and packaged risks and how those risks connect? And is it part of the policy conversation? I mean, definitely, you know, based on the science and based on kind of, you know, uh, the assessments that are done on the ground to, to really understand what the impacts are, um, this has really kind of supported or, or I guess informed decision making not decision making, but I guess policy development as well. Yeah, before it, it kind of reaches the, the, the decision making processes in place. Um, but the thing is that you know, um, while science is there and 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 I guess the the evidence is there, um, you know, it's somewhat uh, there's there's somewhat a gap in terms of you know how how policies respond to to, to this yeah uh, to to, to the, the the evidence that's being put on the table. Um, uh, I think we talked earlier on about, you know, uh, the vulnerability assessments, yeah? Um, if we were to do a vulnerability assessment now in Kiribati, we wouldn't understand the impacts until that would be analyzed and maybe the event had, you know, lapsed. So, you know, so there is kind of a certain gap in terms of time frame, And I think this is where um, governments, uh, along with their, their, their bilateral partners and, and the regional organizations, which supports kind of technically this front of, of addressing climate change, uh, need to to look at kind of you know uh, forecasting yeah what happens and and really informing decision making processes in place beforehand and I think that has been somewhat you know the discourse over a few years now um, but again it really comes down to to how how this is being addressed on the ground yeah um, what are the resources that are required to 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 kind of respond to these events yeah I think it, you know the science is there the evidence is there. Um, it's just about kind of making decisions and I won't kind of go on that because, you know, policies are there to kind of inform decision making processes, but it's another thing kind of, you know, really implementing these, these, these policies in place, yeah, efficiently. So. Indeed, indeed. Are you nodding like you've got an idea there that you want to talk about, Mark, just before I jump to something else? Oh, look, it's not, it's not surprising that in some respects the, um, the policy is lagging behind the science because the science is moving quite quickly. You know, there's lots more evidence and such like coming through. Um, but but also, also true in some respects that, um, uh, you know, at times the policy has been leading the science. And so, um, so I don't think it's a simple, <laughs> sort of simple picture here. I think in some respects we've, we've seen uh, in a policy action, uh, you know, in various ways uh, leading the science. And so, uh, and, and one of those areas I think is, is the loss and damage agenda. Um, and so, uh, you know, the science, the, the politics there has is, is actually been um, dragging the science almost behind it uh, in, in a way. Excellent. And, and that kind of takes us to, and you flagged it there, Choi, that there's need for action at a national level, there's need for action at a regional level, and there's need for action at a global level uh, in response to climate change and policy development in that space. And obviously at the global level, uh, the primary mechanism there is the the uh, Council of Parties to UNFCCC. So the, the COP meeting as it's known, uh, and we've got COP27 in, in prospect. 
I wanted to have a, a, a bit of a conversation with you both about though the, where we've come from over the particularly over the last year because there was a lot of expectation leading into COP26, uh, particularly from the Pacific, and and probably a fair bit of disappointment. So the, the that point about ocean climate nexus was probably a positive to come out of uh, COP26 for the Pacific, uh, but a lack of um, commitment that was seen as credible um, by by Pacific leaders in terms of driving forward and particularly keeping to that 1.5 degree sort of uh, level. Um, and can I get a, a feel from both of you in terms of how do you think the last, the COP26 and what we've seen in implementation since then, would you consider it a success? Is the criticism a bit strong or, or, or was it lacking in terms of actually driving forward the response to climate change? Can I start with you, Choi, and then I might come to Mark? I think well, at the global level, I think, you know, just to be, um, I guess, uh, to be direct about it, I think, you know, there is a lack of, 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 of progress, yeah, in terms of what needs to be done. I think that's, 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 that's articulated across different kind of fronts in terms of, you know, um, uh, how the global community needs to respond to, to I guess, you know, or to implement the Paris Agreement, or even achieving the 1.5 degree global goal. Um, going down to kind of the region and the Pacific, I think the Pacific Island, you know, uh, uh, group um, have shown constantly their ambition to 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 achieve this target. Yeah, um, through their policies, through their uh, I guess uh, NDCs, and and then you know, to to really articulate what the challenges are, what the vulnerability kind of you know. Uh, discourses and and also kind of uh, bring with it a lot of you know concrete solutions from the Pacific region on, on how to address these issues yeah these are making waves through the UNFCCC process and that's something that you know the Pacific group has, has been articulating for a while now um, but I guess the disappointing kind of you know turnaround is, is, is that you know the global community has has really somewhat you know um, dropped the ball in terms of you know their their part, yeah, in 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 meeting these targets, yeah. Um, as much as I wanted to kind of you know blame the the disruption with COVID, um, that that should still not be uh, I guess an excuse, yeah. I think that the momentum, the ambition um, level that was supposed to be seen at COP twenty six or coming out of COP twenty six was, um, you know, was disappointing. I think for for my part, um, I think there was a lack of you know, uh, regardless of you know the Pacific Island group. Um, and all the other vulnerable kind of, you know, countries having their say um, and keeping the momentum going. I think there was a lack of there, you know, coming out of COP. I, it was good to have the ocean, the climate ocean nexus come kind of, you know, you know, as, as part of that, you know, uh, success coming out of COP26, but, you know, in its whole entirety and how we address the, the, the issue, um, you know, I think there was somewhat, uh, uh, you know, uh, a decrease, yeah, kind of a drop in terms of, you know, um, you know, commitments. So, um, yeah. There's a fair note of disappointment there in that mark, isn't there? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there can be expectations which can be unrealistic in some of these meetings. And so, um, and so people get disappointed when that happens. But, you know, from my perspective, um, what we saw was um, that uh, at Glasgow there was there was increased ambition from a whole range of countries. So you know the NDCs were strengthened, um, 
there were lots of initiatives announced, such as the Clyde Bank Declaration for Green Shipping and uh, uh, you know the Land Use Sustainability um, Agenda, the methane uh, commitment to reducing methane and various other things. So, so there was lots of very positive initiatives, some of which I think have moved forward a bit. Um, there was also the closing off of the sort of the UNFCCC, you know, the Paris Agreement toolbox. And so, you know, like actually getting agreement to the to the mechanisms. And so so there was movement there. But the, the big challenge, of course, is that under the Paris Agreement, uh, virtually every country actually signed up to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. And yet what we've seen is increased emissions. So last year, emissions were at record levels again. Um, they dipped a little bit during COVID, um, but bounced back. And so um, so the evidence is that uh, countries in aggregate, even if a few are meeting their, their goals of emission reduction, in aggregate they're not, and we're, we're actually, uh, you know, haven't taken our foot off the climate change as a global community. And, and so that's the big disappointment for me, um, that uh, the, the words aren't being matched by the actions. Did, uh, Joy, nodding there, you would like to respond to that? Yeah, I think that that's, that's somewhat kind of, you know, it's painted on. I think, you know, regardless of, I mean, and it's good to have a lot of, you know, things coming out. I guess the, the main the main thing that was required, you know, really didn't happen, which was, you know, uh, countries really doing their part in, 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 in taking action to reduce emissions. And so I think that's where the disappointment is, yeah. I think we, we came up with a lot of uh, concrete, uh, uh, I guess, uh, way forwards, yeah. Um, but it, it's, I think, from my perspective, and then I guess, you know, speaking on, you know, for, for the delegation that, was there uh, from Kiribati as well? You know, we wanted to see more more action towards you know reducing emissions, and that's that's kind of that's the the main thing that was needed. Yeah, it, it didn't happen, but we got other things in, in you know in place now to, to move forward. And I think it's not about kind of moving forward; it's about kind of looking back at what's what's really kind of there and what's needed. Yeah, and I think that's where, in our view, in my view, the the ambition level was kind of dropped a bit. Yeah, in terms of you know what was really so um, so so. Can I, I look forward now to COP27 and and while I don't think there's necessarily a sense that uh, Pacific Island countries have given away the point around, in any sense, given away the point around emissions reduction, while, while there's been a really strong focus on mitigation in the past, one thing that I'm, I'm seeing, and, and potentially you can, you can tell me if this is correct or not, is that there's a really a much greater focus in both the conversation and in policy focus in the Pacific around adaptation. And Choi, I guess I'd like to test this idea with you that does this reflect a view by Pacific leaders in the climate space that we will be facing an increase higher than 1.5 degrees and that there is a need for substantial action in adaptation for the Pacific community to be ready for that future? It's a really good question. I think I won't comment on the, the leader's perspective on this, but uh, um, I think there is uh, a need for action. Um, I mean, adaptation uh, has, has really, you know, been uh, a major priority for Kiribati. And I understand a lot of the Pacific Island countries as well, as well have really articulated in their climate change policies or plans and strategies that adaptation is a priority yeah um but again we're showing our commitments through you know uh the mitigation front to, to also tell you know 
the world that yeah we you know we, we might emit you know irrelevant uh, emissions uh, from our corner of the world but we we are taking action yeah and I think you know this this is this is supposed to kind of you know uh, somewhat stir kind of the 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 political discourse you know at the high level yeah um, about you know raising ambition and taking action um, but the reality of it is uh, for Kiribati especially um, you know regardless of the instruments uh, that we have to kind of submit and, and kind of report to under the UNFCCC, adaptation has always been kind of, you know, a priority for Kiribati. Yeah? Um, and, and that's the thing. I mean, the discussion, you know, needs to kind of revolve around that. And, and, and this is why a lot of the mechanisms working closely with the regional organizations um, have been kind of articulated to, to support, you know, adaptation, resilience, you know, even through the NDC implementation um, and the NDC hub, which is, you know, established within the Pacific region, it all revolves around adaptation, adaptation financing, adaptation implementation. Um, so I think it's it's fair to say that, yeah, adaptation is, is somewhat, you know, needed. But this is a different thing altogether when you're talking about regional kind of priorities or national priorities, as opposed to kind of what happens at the international, you know, uh, uh, arena or when you're, you're, you're within the UNFCCC kind of, you know, negotiations, yeah? Um, there has to be a compromise, there has to be a balance, yeah, and somewhat, yeah, uh, creates kind of, you know, an imbalance in terms of priorities, and that's fair to say, there's more parties kind of involved in, in that process, but uh, again, uh, the Pacific Island countries uh, continue to, to, to kind of articulate through different fronts, be it, you know, oceans, be it, uh, you know, mitigation, be it uh, disaster or loss and damage, it all comes back to kind of, you know, how we adapt to climate change through different fronts. There are different kind of, you know, uh, vulnerabilities and impacts faced, um, but it's all in the effort to really adapt to 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 climate change in the future. So. Yeah, and 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 we should tip our hat to some of that that regional work that's being done there, um, and particularly through the Pacific Island Forum and through uh, through SPREP as well. Um, there, so the Secretariat of the Pacific Regional uh, Environment Program, um, in terms of the coordination between. Um, governments and the building of a consensus position where there's the opportunity for within the uh, within the uh, framework. Um, Mark, it, it, can I um, test that somewhat provocative idea? If the, you think there's been again a shift in what you've seen in the conversation, and I guess a sense of um, uh, are people still confident? in that or, or confidently aiming for that 1.5 degree level? Yeah, when we look at our, our greenhouse gas emission budget, um, it, it's very hard now to keep to 1.5 degrees, unfortunately. Um, we may overshoot by a little bit um, uh, but, and then come back down, but that would require much greater action than we've seen. And so um, so at the moment, uh, you know, 1.5 as, as a goal, um, would be very hard to achieve. Not not impossible, but very hard at this point. Um, and so I think it's right to have a very strong focus on emission reduction, um, but at the same time, it's really important to have a, a focus on adaptation because climate change impacts are happening right now um, and they're happening very significantly. And so, so it's a very rational thing to want to adapt to those changes. Um, and yet when we look at the allocation of climate finance across uh, the world is that only a very small proportion of that, perhaps some um, seven to eight percent, was I think the number coming out of the IPCC, 
um, seven to eight percent of that expenditure on climate change finance was actually on adaptation. The vast majority of it went to emission reduction. And as we've heard from Choi, is that that's not necessarily a priority for the Pacific countries, is that adaptation is a priority. So there is a, a sort of a mismatch between uh, those two big, big spend factors. Um, and increasingly what we're seeing, and this is uh, very much driven by the science, is that there's very good interactions between emission reduction and adaptation. So you can have good emission reduction activities, which also are good adaptation and vice versa. Um, so you don't have to separate these things out. You can think of them as things you can do together. And, and so, for example, putting insulation in your house um, both means you're less, less uh, affected by climate changes because of the insulation, but it also means you're, you produce less greenhouse gas emissions because you have to heat and cool less than you do otherwise. So there's a, um, you know, an ob obvious synergy there. Um, so we need to be thinking um, a bit more about adaptation. We need to be putting more effort into adaptation and we need to link that into sustainable development more effectively. We've got just a couple of minutes left, so I guess just with a with an outlook towards uh, the leaders that uh, joining together at, at Sharm El Sheikh for for COP twenty seven, uh, from a for the agenda of the Pacific, if you could have a couple of outcomes each that you could quietly pencil into the outcomes for COP twenty seven, you can do it in advance. We won't tell anyone. Um, can I can I give you a chance each? What would be the couple of things that you would prioritize? And and I'll start with you, Choi. I think the the elephant in, in in the whole Paris Agreement kind of process is is you know loss and damage. Yeah, I think that's that's um, uh, a thematic area that needs to be really kind of discussed in depth and then really kind of you know have that concrete discussion about you know how to articulate it, but also how to 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 address loss and damage. You know. Um, I think the, the issue that, that really stemmed from understanding loss and damage was, was just the understanding of it, the terminology and, and what it entailed. Yeah, You have the developed uh, country or the parties or the, the Annex One countries saying that it, it's, a, it's a mechanism to, for compensation, but for developing country parties, it was more you know, a mechanism to, to, to address issues now, yeah, and, and things beyond adaptation. So uh, yeah, beyond adaptation. So, you know, there needs to be that discourse, more discussions, more more kind of you know uh, workshops, you know, sitting together to, to articulate what it really means. And I understand the process has been moving along with regards to um, loss and damage, but this is you know we're at, we're at the discussion about financing for loss and damage, and I think you know that's an equally important um, you know uh, area that needs to be discussed and and, and and really you know firm out what it entails. You know, um, I think. It's, it's not just about the financing, it's about, you know, what it leads to after. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we, we get we get blurred by, uh, you know, dollar signs, uh, you know, and, and, and who has to pay and, and, and who receives, you know. Um, but at the end, it's it's all about, you know, uh, you know, I guess from, from the context of Kiribati, you know, it, it has these somewhat um, uh, existential survivability threats that, that would be imposed if we're not able to, to kind of, you know, Get support now. Yeah, um, there's short-term needs which are low-hanging fruits, or, or you know, short-term needs of, of the country, and then there are long-term needs. And this is where, you know, from the context of Kiribati, well, you're looking at loss and damage to address the short-term kind of needs, you know, and adaptation to address you know the longer-term needs, and then vice versa. These could be articulated, you know, somewhat in, in, interchangeably. But you know, for vulnerable countries, I think they, you know, it's 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 
I think we need we need more we need more talk about this. I think this is what you know. I think I won't dwell on the other thematic areas, but this is a, a key part of you know uh, COP twenty seven that needs to come out. Yeah, something you know firm about you know loss and damage and how we articulate it, how we respond to it, how you know we all collectively address loss and damage. Yeah, I think that's it for me. Fantastic, thank you, Choi. And and I and it's now on the agenda, which is being contested, but now on the agenda. Is that correct, Mark? Yeah. Well, there was a there was a, a a, a sort of a placeholder agenda item from Glasgow, um, but it, it wasn't meeting the needs of, of a whole stack of countries, and and there was a big argument about how that was going to be de um, dealt with. So that's that's what's happened there. Um, from my perspective, um, absolutely um, uh, pressure to increase uh, ambition in terms of emission reduction and increase uh, finance will be part of the discussions at Sharm El Sheikh at the next COP. Um, I think following on Choi, uh, loss and damage is going to be a big issue um, and, uh, and and that's going to be a very difficult one. But we shouldn't lose sight that we should actually be in the first instance trying to reduce that loss and damage. <laughs> you know, so not, not, not respond after the fact when we're cleaning up the mess, but actually responding proactively to reduce the loss and damage as much as we can. And so that's where the adaptation agenda comes in. And we need to be far more proactive on that and, and be much more um, uh, foresighted and, and, uh, and, and engaged on that agenda than I think COP has in the past. And the last one, which I think may pop its head up, and I don't know this, of course, but um, is there may be a revisiting of the uh, agenda item to essentially close down coal. Um, so that almost got through um, uh, with with a sort of a you know a shutdown sort of uh, agenda, um, but but it, it got watered down at the last minute, and I, I suspect that that may actually be revisited this time. That would be fascinating, and I know that that. Um was a really challenging one. It's it's struck a nerve in the uh, particularly for Pacific Island countries uh, in terms of in terms of Glasgow as well. Look, colleagues, thank you very much. We really appreciate your your time and your expertise and your leadership that you're both uh, delivering in, in various forms in regard to the uh, climate agenda for the Pacific. Uh, wonderful to have this conversation and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Hopefully, seeing some terrific outcomes that actually go to the interests of the Pacific uh, in the upcoming uh, COP27 conference. Um, and we'll be following on from this uh, with a more uh, substantially policy-focused uh, conversation uh, in regard to COP as, as well with a podcast uh, for viewers in the region. So thank you very much both for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder podcast. You can find more podcasts, analysis and research on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can also follow the Australia Pacific Security College on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. Join us next time for another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder.